So Matthew 24, uh, we're through that, but we're not really through it because what we're looking at is just a continuation of what we've done. I think Pastor Chris has done a really great job. I know I've learned a lot over the last few weeks about that chapter that I never knew before. And so he's done a very good job of breaking that down for us, helping us to understand it in context and also in the larger uh, perspective of Matthew's gospel and Matthew's theme of Jesus being the king, that he is not only the king of Israel, but that he is the king of kings. And so as we go through Matthew, we're now seeing uh, his reign being established and, and we see how essentially the coronation of his reign as the king of kings uh, was AD 70, that that was uh, his uh, coronation as king, that there was no longer another way to God except through the Messiah, that the way through the temple had been shut and that only through the high priest Jesus are we able to come, which is the same situation that we're in today. So since we've spent so much time in Matthew 24, I want to kind of reorient us back into the larger story before we, before we move in here. So if you go back to the, the beginning of Matthew 24 where we were at, all of Matthew 24, and then moving on to what we're looking at now, is the last day of Jesus' public ministry. So everything that we've studied for seven weeks was just a few hours of teaching for Jesus. Um, so the setting is in the Mount of Olives. You remember he comes out from the temple up to the Mount of Olives, and he's teaching on the Mount of Olives. This is the last day before he's going to be arrested. This is the last day of his public ministry. And these questions come about the temple, and that's when we looked in chapter 24 when he's explaining to them what's going to happen in the temple. So this was just a matter of a few hours of teaching that Jesus was giving them in this last day. So I know we've spent a lot of time unpacking all that, but I want to kind of bring us back to the setting of where are we at in the story of the lifetime of Jesus. Everything that we just learned is just in a period of a few hours. So what we're about to read, the parable that we're going to look at today and then the one following it next week and the rest of that teaching is the last teaching of Jesus' ministry. So I want you to have in your mind as we're looking at this text that this is Jesus kind of summarizing a lot of his teaching before he's going to end up being arrested. So you think about a person's last words, they choose them carefully. So we want to carefully look at what Jesus is choosing as his last words here. So if you found your way there, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 25 this morning. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour can be seated.
The title of the message this morning is The Readiness of the Righteous. The Readiness of the Righteous. I want to give you a couple keys before we start unpacking this uh, passage so that you can understand again the context of what Jesus is doing here. This is a parable. It's commonly referred to as the parable of the ten virgins, or some translations may render them as ten bridesmaids. That's kind of how you can think of them in a modern wedding context. But I want to, I want to make a clear distinction because this is also going to apply to uh, the other parables we're looking at later. A parable and an allegory are two different genres of literature. So, so the Bible, uh, as many of you know, is comprised of 66 books, but there are a variety of different literary styles there. You've got poetry, you've got wisdom literature, you've got prophetic literature, you've got narratives. For instance, Matthew is mostly a narrative passage, but then you've got parabolic language here where you've got parables. When you're interpreting the Bible, you have to make sure that you are interpreting it based on the literary style in which it's written. For instance, in Revelation, when it talks about a beast coming out of the sea, we do not believe that an actual reptile-like creature is going to come out of the sea and start speaking to everyone. Why do we not do that? Because it's apocalyptic literature and it's designed to be figurative in that sense. So we want to make sure that we interpret things in the context of the literary genre that they're in. I want to point that out because a parable and an allegory are two different things. In an allegory, you're telling a story where every element of the story is symbolic of something else. A popular allegory that most people know is the Chronicles of Narnia. Everybody knows that in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia is Aslan, but that Aslan is actually representative of Jesus, that the, the story of Narnia is actually about the gospel, and Aslan is this lion that represents Jesus. That's an allegory. A parable is different in that it has more of a symbol instead of lots of symbols. In a parable, you're only trying to make one point. And so you're constructing a story to give people a framework to understand that point, but everything in the story is not necessarily symbolic. And I want to point this out because sometimes we read parables and we're going to ask questions of, why is the number 10? Why, why, isn't, why isn't it 11 virgins or 9 virgins? Why is it 10? Does that number have a special significance? And you start chasing that idea. Or uh, what kind of lamps are these? And, and what, kind of, uh, what kind of fabric are the people wearing? And uh, in Jewish culture, in a wedding, when the wedding procession takes place in this order, in, in this parable, it seems like it's a little bit of a different order. Is, does Jesus have some kind of secret meaning in there? Now, when we study Scripture, there's a whole lot of meaning that, that we have to study. This is the reason why pastors spend time studying. A lot of the study that we do, honestly, is cultural. Because in a, Western, in a modern Western context, there's a lot of Jewish culture, especially in Matthew, that we just don't understand because we didn't grow up with it. So, for instance, one of the things I learned from studying this text is that most Jewish weddings, whenever the uh, bride and the groom come together and they go and celebrate, most of this actually occurs in the evening in Jewish culture. I didn't realize that. I don't know about you, but I've never been to a wedding that was uh, late at night. That's, you know, maybe people have like a reception or something that's later at night, but usually the wedding ceremony itself doesn't occur that way. But culturally, it does happen here. So a lot of what we're trying to do is, is understand culture. But what we can have a tendency to do with Scripture, and what I don't want us to do this morning is get, look so much into the details for meaning that we actually miss the meaning. This happens a lot with prophecy. Like, for instance, Chris has pointed out many times in ch chapter 24, we don't need a futuristic, mystical interpretation of Matthew 24 when there's a clear historical event that explains what Matthew 24 is talking about. And so this morning, there's one point to the text. The point of the parable is this, be ready. 
It's, it's readiness. That, that is the point. So we're going to look at some of the symbolism and, and, and what he means and all of that here, but I don't want you to miss the main point, which is the readiness of the righteous. That's the title of the sermon, the readiness of the righteous. So uh, before you take away lamps and oil and uh, processions and houses and doors being shut and all these other things that we're going to look at, zoom out and make sure that Jesus is telling all of this story to make one point, and that is be ready. That is the point of the text. So, the first thing I want you to see in the text here, in the readiness of the righteous, is the party identified. Let's look again at verses 1 through 4. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. So this is the party identified. So who are we talking about? We're talking about these uh, bridesmaids or these ten virgins that are a part of a wedding party. Most of us have seen, usually in a wedding party, you've got the bride. She's usually got like a matron of honor and bridesmaids or something like that. And then the groom uh, has the same. It's not exactly the same as, as what we're used to, but it gives you an idea that there are designated people that are participating uh, in the wedding ceremony here. So Jesus is just simply uh, laying out this story of picture in your mind a wedding with a wedding party. That's the point that he's making here. No no real mystical stuff here. There's two things that I want us to see about this party that's identified. One is that they were similar in, in appearance, and two, that they were separate in their action. So how were they similar in appearance? They were similar in appearance, one, because obviously they, they were identified as part of this wedding party, so they probably had some kind of wedding clothes or something on to where people could tell, you know, this wasn't just uh, the average everyday clothes they would wear, but it was a special occasion that they were dressing for. And if you notice, they provided their own lamps. So it says in the text there, it says, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So each of them had a lamp that they were provided. Now, what do these lamps look like? Uh, To give you an idea, normally it was, the word there is actually more like torch than it is a lamp. So it would be a long pole, probably with a piece of cloth wound tightly around the end of it. And then they would carry the oil, they would uh, soak the cloth in the oil and light it, and they would carry it like on a long pole. And the reason why is, for one, uh, these happened late at night, and two, what would happen is is the the uh, wedding party would travel through the city, and these uh, torches would light the way. And so, when people saw the torches uh, in Israel, even today, weddings are they're a community occasion. So. This is just one picture. After they come into the house at the end of the story, Jesus doesn't explain the rest of the wedding culture, but that's the beginning of the party. The party can last anywhere up to a week. So uh, when we hear about the marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus returning again and his people coming to be with him, that uh, that is the wedding party that's happening, and the consummation of the marriage actually doesn't happen until the end of that. Now, I don't know all the the end times implications for that, but I am curious about it uh, as we're studying more. But in in this passage, to give you an idea, these are torches. They're not like little little lamps that you would carry, but it's something very bright. It's lifted up high so that when they're going through the city, they're announcing that this bride and groom are coming through. And it wasn't unusual for other people to uh, join in the party, for people to be dancing in the street or to be giving them gifts or, or singing. It was a normal thing in the middle of the night for the wedding party to come through and the whole city to just kind of start going crazy in celebration because marriage was such an important part of the culture there that they would, that they would do this. But they provided their own lamps. So they have this own lamps. And how are they identified? One of the ways they're identified is they're excited about the wedding. 
All, t- all 10 of these bridesmaids are excited. Now, for you ladies, if any of you have been a bridesmaid in a wedding, usually you get pretty excited. You get uh, a special dress usually that matches everybody else. You get to be a part of the planning sometimes. Um, you get to be there when the bride's getting ready and the family's coming around. and You get to experience all these great memories uh, in the wedding that other people on the outside don't necessarily get to experience. And so there's this excitement that happens of getting to be a part of the wedding party. And so what these ten virgins have in common is that they were similar in their appearance. You couldn't tell, uh, as we see later, that some were ready and some were not. You can't tell from looking at them. One of the primary ways that the righteous are made ready is through identification with a local church. Uh, Identification is not merely having your name on the role of a church, but on the hearts of its members. In other words, you should know uh, who your membership is. Who are these people that I am covenanted with? And we don't have any records in Scripture, or really in church history for that matter, of mature Christians that are not connected to a local church. It's, it's a phenomenon for a person to say, I'm a really strong Christian, I'm just not a part of a local church. That doesn't really exist. There's not a biblical category for that. And so uh, how do we identify ourselves with the, with the groomsmen? How do we know that we're in the wedding party? Well, the way that we apply that is being in the visible church. In other words, being a member of a local church identifies you with Jesus. Well, what, what type of Christian are you? Or who is the Jesus that you follow? Uh, the Mormons follow a Jesus, and the Jehovah's Witnesses follow Jesus, and they have membership. Are you members with them when you say that you're a Christian? No, I'm a member of this church over here and the Jesus that they preach. That, that is the, the groom that I am associated with. That is the wedding party. So, for instance, if you were a member of Barberville Baptist Church, what you're saying is, is I'm identified with the wedding party that believes that Jesus actually lived a sinless life, that he was born of a virgin, that he uh, died uh, for the sins of everyone who believes and resurrected from the dead to prove uh, his power over death, hell, sin, and the grave, that he has ascended bodily into heaven where he sits now with the Father at the right hand of the Father in a physical body, and that he's going to physically return again one day for his people, right? That's the Jesus that we preach here. So when you say, I'm a member of that church, what you're saying is, I'm a member of that wedding party. So not, not, the, other, not the other groom named Jesus that is something totally different, like what cults believe. We're, we're, that's not the wedding party that we're in. We're not on board with those guys. We don't have anything to do with that guy. They might have the same name, but they're not the same person. So membership in a local church is one way that you have the appearance of being in the wedding party. So it's something to consider. If you're blessed by your church, if you're blessed by being identified with those people, tell somebody. That's a, that's a practical thing that, that we can do. It's interesting that uh, for some people, church membership is like being a vegan or doing CrossFit. It's like, well, how do you know if somebody's a vegan or they're really into CrossFit? You just talk to them for five minutes and you find out because that's what they're most passionate about of like, let me tell you about this workout I did the other day or let me tell you about how meat is murder or, you know, what, or whatever it is that, that there's their thing that they want to proclaim. And yet... Uh, what is it, what is it that, uh, that we talk about when people say, like, what's going on in your life right now? What's something important in your life? Well, hopefully, because you have a, real relationships with people in the church, that's part of the conversation is, hey, this is, you know, I was in a small group this week with my friends, or, hey, this uh, was happening in this family's life. I got to be a part of uh, that event in their life, or uh, the Lord was really speaking to me about this in my devotional time this week, or 
here's something from the message last week that really stood out to me. Those should be just normal uh, conversations that we have. That's how we identify ourselves with the groom. We talk about the groom. We talk about the stuff that the groom is doing. And we're, we're, we're excited about this wedding that's happening. So they're similar in appearance, but they're separate in action. So there's some ways in which they're saying there's some way when they're separate. They're separate in their action for a couple of reasons. One, they didn't take any oil. Notice, look real close at the, at the grammar of what they're saying here. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. So if you think about it as a torch, it doesn't have a reservoir for oil. In other words, it's, it, they weren't saying, I've got a little bit of oil, but I just didn't have enough. They just didn't take any at all. They didn't have any oil. In other words, they thought, we'll just cross that bridge when we get to it. We're just going to go because we want to be a part of the party, and we'll figure it out when the time comes. We'll get oil from somebody else, or we'll go buy some, or uh, we don't have to worry about that right now. Right now, we're in the party, and, and that's, that's the point. So they were separate in their action because they didn't take any oil at all, and then notice their, their attitude about the oil. They're just, they're just not that concerned about it, about, about the oil. We'll figure it out later. It'll work itself out. Everything will come together. It always does. That, that's their attitude, is they just don't care that much about it. So what is this oil? Well, it depends on uh, who you ask. So none of the commentaries that I read this week had the same answer about what they thought the oil was. In fact, one of them said, don't try to figure out what the oil is because it's not the point of the story. Again, the point of the story is readiness. That's the point. Are you ready? However, I do think trying to understand how the oil fits into the picture will help us understand how to apply this a little better. The easiest way for me to explain it is that the oil is representative of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So what, so what does that mean? Uh, for one, uh, when we look at typology in the Old Testament, we see these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. One of the pictures that we see representative of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is oil. That's one of the ways that, that the Lord talks about him uh, and his presence. For instance, the oil in the temple of the flame that's constantly burning can be representative of this Holy Spirit that is sustaining the ministry of the temple, that, that he's, he's, he's ever burning, he's ever living, he is what's sustaining it. And so when we see fire, fire can be representative of God's glory uh, or his power or, or his judgment. Well, what is that fire fueled by? Well, it's fueled, the Holy Spirit is the one carrying out the work and the ministry of the Father so that we see, uh, so that we see his work being fulfilled and, and him being glorified. So who glorifies the Father? Well, ultimately, like for instance, we bring glory to the Father, but how do we do that? We do it by the Holy Spirit. He is the one that enables us to do it. So I would argue that in this text, we need to think of the oil as, as the Holy Spirit himself, but also as his work. In other words, the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, being born again, is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, having spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, sharing the gospel is a work of the Holy Spirit in a person. These are all evidences. How, how do you know if a person has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them? It's because they're born again and because their works testify that they're born again. That's essentially how you know. But all of those things happen as a result of the Holy Spirit. So as we're talking about these lamps and this oil and all that, again, the big picture is readiness, but I want you to think of it as this is the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about here. So what we see is, is that while they were similar in appearance, in other words, they are members of the visible church, these ten virgins, 
Some of them were born again and some of them were not. Some of them had works that were in keeping with a person who was uh, being draw, uh, driven by the Spirit and others did not. And that's primarily the difference. Now, at this point in the parable, we can't tell who it is and who it isn't. Just like today, I can't look out and say, this person's converted, this person's not converted, or both these people fed a homeless person this week, one of them is lost, one of them is not lost. I can't tell. I have no ability to see that. God will be able to tell, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want you to take just a second and think about this. We don't talk about this a whole lot. It makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes in our tradition. But what is your relationship with the Holy Spirit like this morning? Sometimes we, we neglect to talk about him or think about him because we're afraid somebody's going to get up and start speaking in tongues and running the aisles around here and grab the Christian flag. And, you know, we think that that's what's going to happen if we talk about the Holy Spirit, forgetting that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control, by the way, <laughs> and that, uh, and that uh, Paul says that everything should be done decently and in order under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what is your relationship with him like? The Holy Spirit is a person. Don't forget this. He's not, he's not a force. He's not power. He's not uh, a good luck charm, the way that a lot of people think of him. He is a person. He, he is fully a person. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as a person because we associate him with a physical body, so we think that he's like us. The reality is, is he is like us in his humanity, but in his divinity, he's nothing like us. He's, he's completely different. In his divinity, he's much more like the Holy Spirit than he is like us. But we kind of understand him. This is the reason, part of the reason why he was incarnated. But we have to remember the Holy Spirit is, is a person. He's a real person. And we do have a relationship with him. The Bible says that he is your counselor and that he's your teacher. You should be learning from this person. You should have a relationship with him. Did you consider the Holy Spirit when you were getting ready to come to church this morning? He is the one that empowers you to worship. Uh, if you sing outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, your singing is not acceptable to God. If you give, it doesn't matter how much you give, if you give outside of the prompting of the Holy Spirit without a clean conscience before God, He does not accept your gift. The Lord uh, does not, He will not accept my preaching if I don't pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to work, work through me. I can get up here and say the fanciest words and say the nicest thing, and it will do nothing to anybody's heart. It will have no power. It will not benefit the church. It will not build any of you up or strengthen any of you if I do it outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go and share the gospel, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you're the greatest apologist on earth and you can answer every Bible question that there ever was and refute every atheist argument, if you are not going in the power of the Holy Spirit, that person will not be saved. And, and you may even be hardening that person because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work in that. So consider him when you're preparing to come to church. Consider uh, is the Holy Spirit going to empower me to worship God today? This is one of the things we, we, we pray for in the beginning is we confess, like, Lord, we need your help because we can't even bring you acceptable worship apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. If we bring you worship in the flesh, it's just going to be fleshly, filthy worship to him. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do you ask him for help when you're going to witness to someone? When, when that opportunity comes and you realize, okay, here's an open door for me to talk to this person about the gospel— how often do you stop and pray and ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit who dwells in you according to Scripture, give me the words to say to this person. Go before me and work in this person's heart so that they can receive what I'm about to give to them. 
you're, you, you, you are cooperating with him. He's the one that's really doing all the work. You're just saying, I just want to be used by you. You go ahead of me and prepare the way. Have you considered his role in your personal time with God? Have you ever, have you, a lot of us have felt this way. You feel dry sometimes. You're reading scripture, it's kind of hard to concentrate, or you're in prayer and your prayers are just distracted, or you just, you just don't feel like it sometimes. Or your prayer life just seems dry, like you haven't had a prayer answered in a while, and, and it's just hard, it's hard to keep going. And, and sometimes you even doubt yourself, like, like, what if all of this is fake? What if I just grew up in church and I'm just trying to be a good person and none of this is real? Maybe I'm the only person that's felt that way, but I've been there before, if I'm being honest. You know what's missing in those times? Fellowship with the Holy Spirit is, is what's missing there. And so going to him and just saying, you know what? Um, maybe I don't need to go through the rules of reading my Bible plan or praying these certain prayers or doing these certain things. Um, maybe I just need to go to the Lord in prayer and confession and just say, Lord, I, just, I need more of your spirit today. That, that is the thing I need. I don't need more knowledge from the Bible. I need the power to do what I already know. And I can't get that apart from the Holy Spirit. So consider your relationship with the Spirit of God this morning. So that's the party identified. The second thing I want you to see in the text here is the proclamation issued. The proclamation issued. Look at verses 5 through 7. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So a couple things that we need to notice here in this passage, is that we will all sleep uh, and that we will all be examined. So we will all sleep. Again, you can look into this too much. A lot of times the language of sleep in Scripture is talking about death. Certainly there seems to be an application there. We know that there are many who have gone before us that are dead now uh, that professed Christ in their life, that were members of the visible church, and that they are asleep. And that one day when the bridegroom returns... Uh, and, and that last trumpet is going to sound and he's going to come, as the scripture says, there will be a revealing. Remember it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those are the ones that we're going to see. There will be a whole lot of church graveyards of church people where not everybody's coming out at the same time. You get what I'm saying by that? If the dead in Christ rise first, you might see some coming out of graves. You might see some not coming out of graves. And it might not matter whether they have reverend on their, grand, on their gravestone or church member or deacon or you know, biggest giver in the church or whatever. That stuff's not going to matter uh, in the end. Uh, the Lord's not impressed uh, by any of those kind of things. And so we will all sleep, uh, all, all of us. Um, that's going to happen just as they did here. And so as they are sleeping, there, there's two ways for them to rest here. Remember, there's two groups. Some are resting in readiness and some are resting in recklessness. The first that are resting in readiness, they knew that everything that they needed when the bridegroom arrived was done. They're, they're, able, they're able to rest in peace. Part of the reason why I had Pastor Wesley read that text, Paul rested in readiness. When he says, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering, he knew, he knew that he was going to die. That's the last letter that he wrote before he died. But what did he say? I have fought the, the good fight. I, I, have, I have made it to the finish. I have kept the faith. So how is he able to rest, even knowing that he's going to die through persecution? He's able to rest in readiness of, when Jesus comes back, I, I'm certain that I'm going with him. I have the oil that's needed. In other words, I have been born again. My works testify that I've been born again. And that when I'm tested on the last day, 
I, I will pass the test because of what is in me, because of what has happened to me. I will pass the test. There are others that rest in recklessness. Let's be honest, the, the majority of people that we know, the majority of people that you talk to in our city, if you were just to go out and talk to people, they will die and they will go to rest in recklessness. They think that at the last minute, when Jesus comes back, he knows I was a pretty good person. He knows all the good things that I did. That'll be enough. That's reckless. It's, it's reckless to think that anything less than what God has said he will accept, he will accept. He's God. We're not going to persuade him to do something other than what he's going to do. Think about in the book of Esther. I, I, love, I love the book of Esther. At the end, Esther's coming to petition on behalf of her people. She's a picture of Christ, by the way. She's coming to petition on behalf of her people. If the king extends his scepter to her, she's allowed to come. If he does not, she's executed immediately. That's the rule. So she comes to the king on behalf of her people, knowing that she may not be accepted, and yet she is accepted. Why? Because she's his wife, because they have an intimate relationship, because he wants to hear what she has to say. There are many people that are going to try to come to God that way on the last day. They're going to try to come and think, I've got a really good reason or I've got a petition that I want to bring or look at these works that I did. Jesus says this over and over again. He literally says, look at all these things that we did in your name. We're going to see this repeated over the next chapter. Why is he repeating it? Because he's saying there's many that are deceived. Many. In this group, it's 50% that that are deceived that are going to go before that king expecting him to hold out the scepter and he doesn't. Why? Because you didn't come to him on his terms. His terms are, there is only one way. If God would go to the extent to destroy the temple, the holy temple of his people where his presence dwelled so that you could only come through Christ, what makes you think that he's going to accept your works? If he went to that extreme to destroy the temple that he commanded to be built, that was built for his glory, why would he accept the filthy rags of works of people who have no interest in his glory whatsoever? He won't accept it. We have to be honest with ourselves this morning. Some of us are going to go and we're going to rest in readiness because we've been born again, not because of our works. We bring no excuses to him. We're going to come because of that relationship. That's the only way that he's going to extend the scepter is because we have one that has gone on by our behalf, as Esther did, and has won deliverance for his people. That is the only way that we can come in. If you're trying to come in any other way this morning, you're not going to make it. You're not. You're resting in recklessness. You will, die, you will die in your sins and you'll stand before God and you'll have no excuse before him. And he's going to judge you. And your church attendance or how much theology you know or anything else, none of that stuff is going to help you then. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. God's plan is different from ours and it's not according to our timeline. Uh, being, uh, what does being in the center of God's will look like? Have you guys ever heard this? When I was growing up, I always heard, you just need to be in the center of God's will, brother. The center of God's will. And I, and I remember as a teenager trying to figure that out, like, I want to obey God. What does that mean to be in the center of God's will? And what I was taught inaccurately was, you know, you need to go and have a prayer journal and you need to pray and then sit really quietly. And then you'll hear this voice in your head and that's the Holy Spirit. And then you need to write that down. And that's how you know what God's will is for your life. I made some decisions uh, that I don't think were God's will based on that strategy. So I would not recommend using that strategy. Um, reading what the Holy Spirit already wrote works a lot better than me trying to figure out what he wants to write. Um, 
But what does it mean to be in the center of God's will? Obedience. That's what it means. There's no way that you're going to be outside of God's will if you are obeying what he has told you to do. It's not, it's not possible. That is his will for you. So when you're in a situation, you got, you've got decisions to make. Well, how do I know if I should go this way or that way or make this choice or that choice or uh, be in this relationship or that relationship or this job or that job or this house or that house? The question is, am I being obedient? If the answer is yes, you can't make the wrong choice. You can't make the wrong choice. You just exercise wisdom and the Lord works through that. So don't have analysis paralysis about, I don't, I don't know uh, what to do in this situation. Make sure that you're obeying God and make the choice and trust him to work it out. Uh, and, and, and how do you gain wisdom? The Bible says you can ask for it and it teaches it. So again, know the word. So we will all sleep, but we will also all be examined. Notice what it says. Then all those versions rose and trimmed their lamps. What does it mean to trim your lamp? Okay, if, it reminds me of a hurricane lamp. Some of you may, may remember those hurricane lamps. They're like real pretty oil lamps, and they have the glass globe on top. We always had those when I was a kid. We never really had a lot of hurricanes in, in the foothills of North Carolina, but we had these lamps, and, you, and it's the same type of deal. You put the oil in, you have a wick that goes down into it, and it soaks up the oil in it, and it lights it. Now, if that thing is all shriveled up and, and, and it's not really clean, it's not going to burn well. It's either going to shoot sparks everywhere or it's just not going to light correctly. It's not going to do a good job. And so what do you do? You trim off the edges. So it's just a nice, clean, single piece of wick. And that way, when it pulls it up, you light it one time and it makes a nice, uh, consistent flame and it's not sputtering and making all, uh, a mess and all this kind of stuff. This is what they're talking about here. So they got up and they trimmed their lamps. What did they do? They, they, they trimmed off all the stuff that, that wasn't really going to help them fulfill their purpose. They trimmed off all the stuff that uh, was going to hinder that light from being used the appropriate way. And then they, were, then they were ready to light the lamps when they trimmed their lamps. What does this mean? This means that we're going to be examined. If you think about tri- trimming, trimming the wick here, this is trimming our works. We all have works to do. Uh, it says we were created for good works. That's what the scripture says. We have, we have works to do. We're not saved by those works. We know that. The Bible clearly teaches that. But we're also not saved to sit. That, that, that's just that's not what Jesus died for. He has a mission. Somebody has to go out and accomplish that mission. So our works are going to be examined. William Henderson said that a moistened wick can burn for a few seconds. So that person that's not really in Christ, but they attend church a lot or they read a lot of theology books or whatever, they might have some moisture there where they go to light it and it looks like it's getting ready to do something, but when it comes down to it, it just doesn't have it where it counts. It just can't get the job done. You can have some works, some things that you've done uh, supposedly in the name of God, and and when those works are going to be tested, you might start to see a little flicker and people get excited like, oh, see, see, they really did have something, but then it just sputters out. It's just, it's not able, it's not able to do it in the end. It's not able to do the job. Think about it. What is the job of the torch? The job of the torch is to light the way for the, the bridegroom and the bride. It's to announce their coming. So when you do good works in the name of Christ, you're proclaiming the gospel of telling people the bridegroom is coming. Be ready. He's coming. This is what we're doing, what we're doing with our good works. Sometimes we think good works is like a checkbox we have to do to be a good church member or something like that. It's not a matter of that. We are called to proclaim the gospel, and that's not just with words saying to somebody, but it's also with our lives. We are supposed to be torches that are lighting the way for the second coming of Christ so that when we go through the city of Waynesville, 
We are carrying that light through the city of Waynesville and proclaiming to the city of Waynesville, your king is coming. He's coming. And you need, to, you need to prepare. You need to make sure that you've got a torch to light. You need to join in the wedding party. Everybody, uh, uh, John Piper said it well, that missions is fundamentally a worship problem. Why do, we do, why, do we, why do we do foreign missions overseas? Because God's worthy to be worshipped of every person on the earth. And until every person on the earth is worshipping him, we're not done. So we work until that happens. What's the problem with Waynesville? Is it drug addiction? Is it homelessness? That's what the city thinks. It's a worship problem. They're, wor- they're, they're worshiping pleasure. They're avoiding pain. They're worshiping themselves. That's where all that comes from. Now, I'm not saying people don't have real problems, but I'm saying we have the answer. Do you know what that person needs? That person needs a torch to go to them and say, hey, your king is coming. Your king has a home for you. You may not have a home, but the king has a home. You're, you're seeking pleasure. There, there's un- unbelievable pleasure and joy and peace past understanding it passes understanding that comes from knowing Christ. You can't get that out of a needle. That's what the city needs to hear. I can't go and tell them all that by myself. We all have to go and do that. We have to trim our lamps. We have to make sure that when Jesus returns, that we're, we're ready. We can say, yes, I'm ready. Holy Spirit, light me on fire. I'm, I'm ready to go and be that light. That's what we need. How do we know this? In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, Paul explains it really well. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so as through fire. So sometimes we need to take a step back at our lives, and we need to look at how we're using our time and our energy and our resources. And we need to ask the question, what am I laying on this foundation of Christ? Is it going to burn up in the end? Your salvation is secure. If you're saved, it's because Jesus saved you, not because you saved yourself. And unless Jesus changes, you're going to stay saved. That's, that's the good news. But I don't know about you guys, but I don't want my whole life to burn up in the end. I don't want to just walk into heaven with what I've got and just say, here I am, all the, all the time, all the hours and labor, uh, the children that I've tried to raise, the wife that I'm trying to disciple, you guys, I'm your pastor. I don't want to stand before God and him say, all of this was a waste of time. All the preparation that you did in preaching, all the discipleship, all the counseling, all the growth groups, all of it burned up. I don't want that. Who wants to work for nothing? So what, so what about you? When you look back over this last week and you look at how you spent your time, how you spent your money, how you spent the skills and the talents that God gave you, how much of that stuff is going to burn up in the end? How, how much of it is just going to be a waste in the end? And how much of it is really going to matter when it's tested? Where God's going to say, hey, you know what? That conversation that you had mattered. That person that you helped mattered. That testimony that you gave to me mattered. That act of obedience mattered. We're not going to do that perfect, but I want to have something to show for my life. Uh, I don't want to come and just say, as Paul says, you come in as through flames. In other words, you're smelling like smoke. That's the only thing you got left of your life is a smoke smell. I want to have something more than a smoke smell in my life. 
And so we need to be doing the works, the good works that he has prepared for us beforehand, as the scripture says. We need to be doing those things. The third thing I want you to see is the preparation insufficient. Look at verses 8 and 9 there, the preparation insufficient. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. The first thing we see is the fools were frantic here. They're frantic because now the time has come. They've they've announced that the bridegroom's coming. The time is short. You only have a short amount of time to get there. And it's too late. It's too late for them. Uh, The word judgment, interestingly enough, uh, we have an English word that comes from the Greek word for judgment. It's crisis in the Greek. In English, we call it crisis. What does crisis mean? Crisis means having to make, being forced to make a decision. So, for instance, when God judges, God is being forced, essentially, by the circumstances to make a decision. He has to make a judgment about this is uh, guilty or innocent. Well, we all encounter crisis. I know, I know some of us here today are in a crisis situation in our lives. We've been forced into circumstances in our lives where we have to make a decision one way or another. It happens all the time. And usually it's very hard. It's very difficult. It's not easy for us to do. The fools in this passage were in a crisis. Now they're stuck in a situation. You have to make a decision. What you've decided to do with your life so far isn't enough. You weren't prepared. The bridegroom's coming. It's too late. You can either wait here and receive his judgment, or you might be able to go and get some oil in time. This is the decision that you have to make. And they're forced into that decision. we're all in a crisis today. The reason why we're all in a crisis today is because we all have to make a decision with what Jesus is saying here. He is forcing his disciples here. He's forcing us. Everyone who has read this passage for the last 2,000 years, he's forcing us into a crisis of, you have to decide. Will you be born again or will you not? Now, we know that that's a, a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We understand that. But the reality is, is that many times we are put into a crisis and our solution is to just press pause and just say, we, we don't want to take the next step. We don't want to make the hard decision. We're just going to avoid the hard decision. We can do that now, but when Jesus comes again, no one can do that. Because then the decision will be made for you. And you're either in Christ or you are not. That's the only two options that you have. Our true state, in fact, what we really believe is often proven in crisis. You know, we talk about the martyrs, many stories of the martyrs, who, when the crisis came of, uh, offer this incense to Caesar, or you're going to be put to death, it's, I would rather die than put a piece of incense in that bowl. We, we've been in a crisis. Let's be honest, in, in our own country in the last two years, the church has been in a crisis. We've been in a crisis many times. We've been forced to make a decision. Many of us are in this situation, and our true state is revealed only by crisis. John MacArthur talked about this. You know, he was one of the ones that stayed open during the pandemic and took a lot of heat. And he said, to this day, most of his friends that are big, well-known pastors, almost all of them have not stood with him. None of them have spoken to him. Despite the huge ministries that they have, glorious preachers of the gospel, incredible preachers of the gospel. But when the crisis came, they backed down. 
There's churches in Canada today that are still not legally allowed to open, and I've seen some of the pastors say on there, we're going to be open, you come and get us. Because when the crisis came, they said, no, I don't answer to you. You're not my king. My king said that we're going to be there. We are going to be forced to answer this as a church. That is going to happen. We are going to endure crisis. And we need to be resolved now because our true state is going to be revealed. It's, it's going to be revealed. Even in my own heart, I have to deal with the fear. What if, what, if, what if my wife and I have had the conversation? What happens to me when I get arrested? Who's going to take care of my wife and my kids? You can't get jail insurance to pay for your expenses when you're in jail. It can't happen. We've had to have that conversation. We've had to have the conversation. My wife has had to have the conversation with my kids. She, she literally sat down with my kids last year at one point and had a conversation with them and said, you just need to know that if we're not allowed to have church, that daddy's still going to have church and that he might go to jail for that and that if he's doing that, it's because Jesus wants him to and you just need to trust that Jesus knows best. That's what my wife told my kids. We've got to make those decisions ahead of time because that's coming. But maybe you have decisions today. What's the point here? The point here is that you can't acquire salvation whenever you want to. God does not work on our timeline. Jesus said no man can come to the Father unless he is drawn. God doesn't draw all the time. God draws when he wants to draw, which means this morning, if you're hearing this message, wherever you are, whether you're in this room or you're online or wherever, this is your opportunity. The door is open to you today to be saved. That door may not be open 20 minutes from now. It may not be open this afternoon. It may not be open tomorrow. And I'm not just talking about Jesus coming back. I'm just talking about when you hear the gospel, that is God drawing you. That is the means by which he draws you is through the proclamation of his word. You may never have another opportunity to truly repent and trust in Jesus as Lord. You may never have that. We take for granted that we have that. Today, the door is open for you. It may not be open later. And you've had to deal with crisis before, and now you're in a crisis now. What are you going to do? The fools were frantic, but the wise were finite. What does that mean? It means they were limited. They knew what they had. They knew that they had the Holy Spirit, but just like you and I know, we can't save anybody else. I can't make anybody else believe. I can't make those who are precious to me believe. I can't do that. Only God can do that. And this is why they told them, we can't help you. You're going to have to go to somebody else. It's too late. So the whole time the fools were, were relying on them to get them in, the same way that people on the street rely on their granddaddy pastor to get them in, or their mom and their dad to get them in, or, their, or the church role to get them in, or their baptism to get them in, or whatever else that they rely on to get them in. Well, in the end, it'll sort itself out because I checked this box and I did this thing. I prayed the sinner's prayer, that'll get me in. No, it won't. None of those things will get you in. There is only one way to come in, and it's through Christ, through being born again. Uh, you have to die spiritually, you have to be dead and be born again to enter the kingdom, and you're going to have to die physically to be born again physically in the kingdom. So if you haven't died to yourself and been born again spiritually, the only way in is death. This is the only way into the kingdom. Death and resurrection. The last thing that I want you to see here is the procession immutable. The procession immutable. Look at verses 10 through 13 with me. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. So there's two things that we, that we see here. The arrival was sudden. They'd been, they had been asleep. It was late at night. They, they had no idea when he was coming. They didn't have GPS. They were asleep. They, 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 there's nothing they can do. When you're, when you're asleep, you can't, you're, you're not aware of what's going on. The arrival was sudden. Think about it. We have very little knowledge of the future. You ever think about how little, how little you know? Uh, I, I, I like to study. That's something that I like to do. And it's amazing that it, I can study old things. I can study history. I can't study the future. I, have, I don't even know what I'm going to eat for lunch today, honestly. Like, I, I, I know so little about the future. And, and yet, we presume upon God that we just have all the time in the world. And believe or hear me, okay, we've been talking about if you're not a believer, even if you're a Christian, hear me, we presume that we have all the time in the world to do the good works that he's prepared beforehand. We think, I don't have to take that next step for God. I don't have to make that decision. I don't have to serve. I don't have to do whatever. Do you realize one of the, one of the biggest crises in the church right now is a lack of pastors? In the last two years, there have been enormous amounts of pastors that have retired under the pressure of COVID. Do you know, I, I think the last time I heard, I think there's five churches in this county that have no pastor now. If they open, they show up, they sing a couple songs, and a deacon leads a prayer. That's all they had this morning. That's it. Our church has three pastors. And in my opinion, that's not enough. We need to have, we need to have enough to share. Maybe, I'm just throwing this out there for you, but maybe that next step is, you know that the, that the Lord has called you into ministry and you're not answering it this morning because you think you have all the time in the world. You don't. Obey Him when He calls you. Jesus warns us consistently about this because of the serious about the problem. If you go out and look through, through the book of Matthew and Jesus' teaching, this is like one of the number one things that he teaches constantly is don't think that you're saved just because you're in church. That, that, that's the modern application of it. And he says it over and over and over again to Israel. I don't care how Jewish you are, what family you were born in, what education you had, how much you do at the temple. None of that stuff matters. He's saying in the end, the judgment is going to be, are you born again or are you not born again? This is what he told Nicodemus. You're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things. Nicodemus, you have to understand that you are not saved by your obedience to the law or about your Jewishness. That's not, that's not how you're saved. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There's another way it can be translated. So the arrival was sudden and the appointment was set. God not only knows the future, but he decrees the future. I watched a really good uh, debate on this uh, this week. I can, If you're interested, I'll tell you about it later. But... Um, he doesn't just know what's going to happen. He decrees what happens. What happens in the future doesn't happen, and God's aware of it. He makes it happen. He causes it to happen. He controls the future. In other words, even though the arrival was sudden to them, the groom knew exactly when he was going to get there. He had already determined in his mind, this is when we're going to leave, this is when we're going to arrive. We don't know. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know how much time we have to do the good works prepared before us, and we don't know how much time we have before the judgment. God knows exactly those things. And God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is telling you, be on the alert. Be ready. That's what he's telling you, that's what he's telling you this morning. Don't, don't sleep on him coming again. Be ready. So we need the readiness of the righteous. You've waited long enough to surrender to King Jesus, if you haven't. You've waited long enough. You've waited long enough to tear down the idols in your heart, the sin that God's shown you that you know is a besetting sin for you. 
You've waited long enough. You've tried fighting it on your own, and you failed over and over again. And unless the Holy Spirit of God removes that idol from your heart, it cannot be removed. And you're tired of fighting it. You've waited long enough. You've made too many excuses to not take the next step of obedience, whatever that is for you, whether that's following Christ for the first time or the millionth time. We've waited too long. Don't wait anymore today. The bridegroom is coming, and you have an opportunity now to be ready that you may not have. Are you going to be ready? Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that in your mercy, you have sent us your word to even warn us that you're coming. Lord, we're not owed that. You could have come back before we were even born and we would have never even existed on this earth. And Lord, how, how generous and merciful it is that you've given us some time even today to consider you. That Lord, it just shows us your heart as your word says that you desire for us to come to you, that you want us to love you and, and, and to see you for who you are and to recognize you and that that is your holy purpose. And Lord, it just, it fills our hearts with gratitude and, and a spirit of awe and worship to think of, of how merciful and patient you have been with us to give us another opportunity today. One that we may never be promised again, Lord. And whenever those opportunities run out, you'll be just as just as, as, you, as you always are. But we pray that today, Lord, if there's, if there's one today, that they would make themselves ready, that, that you would make them ready. We think about our neighbors and, and others that we're going to go see, family members in just a little while, Lord. Help us to be mindful that we're not promised another meal with them. We're not promised another visit. We're not promised any of those things. Help us to be fully surrendered and yielded to you this morning. In Jesus' name.